you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to the book of Ruth. If you don't know where Ruth is, it's time to learn, right? It's the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's kind of tucked in there right after the book of Judges. It's a small book tucked in between lots of larger books. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one, pick one up right over here, or you can follow along on the screen as well. But the book of Ruth is where we'll be this morning and where we'll be for the next Counting this week, six weeks, and we hope that you guys pick up a study guide and jump into groups and join in our discussion of of Ruth. So let's hear from the word of the Lord in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, may all of us who come in here leave knowing that you, whose name is the Lord, are God, and that there is no other God above you, that you are the God who reigns over all the earth, and that in the counsel of God, so you hold supremacy. Father, may you show yourself and your good providence in and through the book of Ruth and our time together in it this morning. Be glorified in your people and through your word as it works itself out in us and our hearts and our lives. We love you. Thank you for Ruth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some books that have titles that should just jump off the shelf and catch your attention. So if you're browsing in a bookstore, there are some titles that you can see that you just latch onto. And I wanted to give you a few examples of these today. One of them is called Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop. A couple of you might need this. It's Goblin Proof in one's, one's Chicken Coop and other practical advice in our campaign against the fairy kingdom. I, I don't know why this is a book, but it is. But if I were to see this book on a bookshelf, as I saw it on the internet this week, I, I caught my attention. Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop. Never thought I might need that book. Another one that I thought was interesting was Bomb Proof Your Horse. Now, I think I understand what they're saying when they say bomb-proof your horse, but at first glance, I'm, I'm thinking like, like, big jacket over it? Are you going to try to protect it with like an iron shield? How are you going to bomb-proof your horse? But here's maybe my personal favorite of the ones that were appropriate to share. <laughs> Knitting with dog hair, a woof-to-warp guide to making hats, sweaters, mittens, and much more. And if you're looking for Christmas presents, like, this one might really make someone's Christmas different than, than their other Christmases. So that one might be one that you might want to check out and buy for someone. But, but you guys, you saw these titles, they, they caught your attention. You saw this book title and it, it grabbed you because it's something different, something out of the ordinary. And when we look in the scripture, the book of Ruth is a book title that ought to grab our attention. And I'll tell you why. There's a few different reasons. The first is that there's only two books in the entire Bible that are named after women. One is Ruth, and the other one is Esther. And so while Ruth is kind of hidden away, it's one of two that are named after women. That ought to catch our attention and grab us. 
But beyond that, there are only two books of the Bible that are named after Gentiles. Ruth being one of them. That alone ought to grab our attention, especially thinking about where it's placed in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth and the book of Luke being the only two books of the Bible named after Gentile. And so Ruth is this book that's named after a Gentile woman, which does not fit anywhere else in all the other book titles in Scripture. And so it ought to grab our attention. And hopefully it has this morning. And as we open up this book that we see is called Ruth, we want more than just the title to grab us. Because when we start opening up this book and start seeing what's inside, there's a lot more that we need to see than just the title of the book of Ruth. We want to see in this book how God works out in the lives of these people that we've just read about. This is more than a title that ought to catch our attention. And what happens in the book of Ruth is that God is working providentially and mysteriously, especially in the midst of tragedy, to bring about his plan of redemption. This is what the book of Ruth is about. God is working providentially kind of behind the scenes, invisibly, mysteriously, even in the midst of great tragedy, to bring about redemption. And so if you notice the setting from verse 1, the setting for the book of Ruth is, is key to the entire book. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. Now there was this period of judges, it was this 400 year period between the time of Joshua and the time of King Saul. And then this period is 400 years these judges ruled. Now let's just get caught up on a brief history of, of Israel. Abraham was called by God to go to a certain place and that he would be a certain family that God would bring blessing to all the families of the earth through Abraham. So he promised him land and seed and blessing. This is Abraham. And Abraham obeys God. He believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. And Abraham has a son and his name is Isaac. And Isaac, so the, the promise passes from Abraham to Isaac. And Isaac has children and it passes on to his son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 children and the promise is, is going to come through these 12 children. We know them as 12 tribes. These are the 12 males of Jacob's family, the 12 tribes. But out of these 12 sons, one of them in particular was disliked. He was the favorite of his father. He was given this colorful coat, and you might know him as Joseph. And, and so here we have the, the promised children, the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, whom God is going to bring blessings to all the peoples of the earth. And the brothers get together and say, we want to kill that one. We don't like him. We want to destroy him. And so they throw him down a well and then sell him into slavery because they felt bad about almost killing him by throwing him down there. They thought slavery might be the better option. So they sell him to slavery. He goes to Egypt. And God providentially provides for the protection of Joseph and then takes him down and then exalts him again at the right hand of Pharaoh, where he saves his brothers and the entire family, the people of God. The people of God preserved through these mysterious workings of God through one son who was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And so the, the people of God are, are moved to Egypt so they could be provided for and protected. But then Joseph dies and the Pharaohs rise that do not like the people of Israel anymore. So they decide to enslave them. This is, this is where Exodus comes in. The people of God are, are many and they're in Egypt and they're under harsh slavery. And they cry out to God and God answers them through his servant Moses. He sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let those people go. And Moses leads the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, across the sea, into the desert. This is where the people of God started to rebel against the God they'd cried out to. They 
decided that Egypt sounded a little better than the desert they were in, and so they started complaining back and forth. So God has them wander around in the desert, brings judgment upon them before they arrive close to the promised land. God then takes out Moses for his disobedience, raises up Joshua. Joshua is this kind of different Moses because what is needed as they take the promised land, they look out of the promised land, it's full of people. It's full of people that are bigger and better than they are. It's needed. What's needed in this is a, a military-type leader, a strategizer who can take them into the promised land. But what they really need was someone to lead them into greater faithfulness to God who ultimately is putting the foreign enemies to flight in the promised land. And Joshua is this man who leads them into the promised land as God continues to push out enemies before them so that they could be in the place that God promised Abraham long ago. So this is where we kind of pick up the story. They're in the promised land. Joshua has driven out the foreign enemies, yet Joshua has now died, and there is no one who has taken his place essentially as this leader of Israel, and instead we're in this time of the judges. After Joshua before there is a king in Israel is the period, the 400 period of Judges. And the Bible is really, really clear with what kind of period this is, the period of the days of Judges. If you will look at the screen with Judges 21-25, the very end of Judges sums it up very, very well, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now to our, you know, Americanized Ears, that might not sound like such a bad idea. But like just to clue you in on the book of Judges and just wisdom from Scripture, it's a bad idea if everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It turns out really, really poorly, and it will always turn out really, really poorly. So in case you're wondering if that was a good idea, Judges is very, very clear that it is not a good idea, and it will not be a good idea. And so when we read that this is in the day when the judges ruled, this is a period in Israel's history that is a frightful period. There is social and religious chaos. There are problems everywhere. This book of this time of Judges is full of violent invasions against the people of God. It's full of religion that's apostate, that's after false gods and idols. It's full of unchecked lawlessness. Just crazy things are happening when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's rampant sin. There's civil war. And so when we say this is in the time of the Judges, what the Israelites would have thought of is that is one of the darkest times in our history. It's a frightful period. The people would sin against God. Then God would send in enemies, and the people would then cry out to God for help, and he would raise up a judge to deliver them, and this cycle was repeated. This is the period of judges. And we see that in the days when the judges ruled, when we see that in the scripture, we need to be thinking unfaithfulness, sin, chaos, problems. That's what we need to be thinking about when we read verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, this is a time of great unfaithfulness in Israel. And so with this going on in Israel, God's people who he had brought out of Egypt, who he had specifically saved and delivered and put in this promised land, it should be no surprise to us that we read after this, during the time of these judges, that there was a famine in the land. Now, why should that not be a surprise to us that there is a famine in the land? Was it the time of like this Israelite version of El Nino where there's dry periods, dry spells? I don't even know if El Nino is the dry one. I don't know which one's which. Is, is that what's going on? Or do we just explain it, you know, kind of scientific? Like there's just a low pressure system over, over Israel and they're just experiencing some, some rather dry climate. Maybe a little bit more dry than normal, but, but extremely dry due to this low pressure system. No, I mean... 
Maybe those things are at play, but I think that there's so clear from a theological perspective, from a biblical perspective, what is going on here. There's more going on than just saying there's a famine. There's more going on than just saying, oh, it's just a dry period and Israel's just going to have to wait until some rain comes. You see, when God gave his law through Moses, he warned them of certain things that if they did them, certain events would happen. So if you look with me in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26 talks about these covenant curses. That is, the people of God were in covenant with God. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Here's, here's the way you are to behave and act. And he told them that if they disobey these things, certain things would happen. So if you look in Leviticus 26, verse 14, he says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do any of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. He goes on in verse 19, continuing on this, this theme, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your he the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. So if you're a farmer and the, the heavens are bronze and the earth is iron, that does bad news for farmers. Like nothing is coming out of the ground, nothing is coming out of the sky. He says, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. He says this again in the second giving of the law that we know as Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 23. He says this, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. This is a reaffirmation of what he just said. This is a second giving of the law. Reaffirmation of what he said in Leviticus. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. These were the, the covenant curses. So they would remember, if you, if you live in unfaithfulness to your God, here are some things that will be the results. Here are the consequences for those actions against God. And so when we read that there's a famine in the land during these time of judges, what we need to see is that the problem primarily isn't that there was a lack of rain, although there was a lack of rain. The problem wasn't primarily that there was a lack of food, although there was a lack of food. The problem primarily for these people, the people of God in the promised land during a famine is their lack of faithfulness. Their problem is their sin. There's not a rain problem or a famine problem in Israel. There's a faith problem in Israel. There's a period known in the, here in the United States known as the Dirty Thirties. Started in 1930s. It was also known as the Dust Bowl around here, maybe a more familiar term. And the Dust Bowl was known by an uh, American meteorologist called this the number one weather event of the 20th century, where black blizzards would blot out the sky and completely cover things and sweep through, especially the Great Plains. Now, there were lots of explanations for that, right? There was an extremely dry weather pattern. There were some, some four poor uh, uh, farming techniques. They weren't practicing soil conservation and all those kind of things. We could look at the Dust Bowl and we could look back and say, we, we can explain some of these things, these horrible black blizzards. We can explain some of them through science, through what we know now. Seems like some of the things were going on here that, that shouldn't have been happening and that caused some of the problems. So we can explain it. 
Like Ruth, there was a famine. There, things were really hard in the land. But we can't say at that time that it was a covenant curse by God. So why can't we in Ruth? Why can't we look to Ruth and see this famine and say this is a covenant curse. This is God's providential hand over this time and that place. Why can we say that? Because we're dealing with the people of God. We're dealing with the promised land. We're dealing with people who are in a certain covenant. We can't say that about the Dust Bowl because it's a different people, different land, and different covenant. If you're wondering, that means that we are not the people of God as a nation, that we are not in the promised land as a nation, and that we are under a different covenant than the covenant of Israel was under. And so we can look to, to Ruth and see there was a famine in the land and know that this famine is happening because the people broke covenant with God. They did not obey God. They rebelled against him. And so these curses are coming upon them. And in the middle of this famine, the story begins with a family. It says there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So there was a family. He has a wife and he has two sons and they were from Bethlehem. And they were called Ephrathites, which likely is just a clan. So under a, a certain tribe, there would be different clans. It's likely just a clan. Could have been a certain area of town. It's not real clear. But they, they were from Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread. So they're from this place that means house of bread, and, and it's not living up to its name. It's not giving them what it kind of promises in its name. This house of bread isn't producing. It's not helping them. And so something has to happen. And so Elimelech decides to do something about it. He and his wife and his two sons, they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And their names were Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. And the name of his sons was Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So Elimelech takes his family from Bethlehem to Moab. And we have a map of this. This is not a real long journey, which is another really big hint, like, you could explain some famine by some mountain ranges, some difference in elevation, but also look how close Moab is. It's just right around the corner from Bethlehem, and surely it seems like Moab might be producing and Israel is not. So is God involved with this or not? And clearly we'd say God is working in this. So they take their family on a short little walk all around the Dead Sea and down and into Moab to get away from the family. Now, kind of remembering the, the Dust Bowl, John Steinbeck wrote a book called The Grapes of Wrath, kind of describing some of the, the people who were fleeing the Great Plains during this horrible period of drought and depression. And at first glance, it seems like maybe Elimelech is, is kind of like one of those characters, one of those families who's just trying to provide for his family. He's just kind of, he's mirroring what was happening at the Dust Bowl. People were moving out to find a way to provide for their families, to provide food, to provide money, to make a living somewhere. And so, what Elimelech is doing is leaving the familiar to the, go to the unfamiliar. He's leaving the known to go to the unknown. Just like those families who had left Oklahoma and the Great Plains to go somewhere else. And we think of them like, man, they made a, a brave move. That's a pretty big deal. And things must have been pretty bad for that to happen. But when we look at Elimelech, is, is this a similar move to the people that left the Great Plains? Is this a brave move? Is, is Elimelech being brave and just being, doing a good move to make sure he does what he needs to do to provide for his family? Well, once again, just as, if, just as in the famine, there's, there's more going on than just he's out of money and has to go. The famine, once again, isn't the main problem. The problem is this lack of faith in Israel. The problem is this covenant unfaithfulness, that they've rebelled against God, that they've broken covenant with God, and the good news is 
But there's a solution. You see, God didn't just give them all these curses and say, here's what's going to happen if you're unfaithful. He says, here's what's happened if you're unfaithful, and here's how you get back. He was very clear to include that in his instructions as well. And so if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 through 3, God telling them, here's, here's how you can get back. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you skip down to verse 8, he says, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I commanded you today. And the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So there was an answer to famine. There was an answer to covenant unfaithfulness. There was an answer to rebellion against God. And it's very, very clear in the law. The answer isn't running. The answer isn't fleeing the famine. The answer isn't some sort of external thing that we have to just correct. If we use better farming techniques, then there won't be all these problems with this drought and lack of bread in the house of bread. No, the problem is sin. And the answer, the solution that God gives him so very clearly is repentance. Turn to your God. Repent from your sins and trust in me. Elimelech does not seem to be following this solution. And I like what one commentator says when he says, It seems, however, that Elimelech designed his own solution. Instead of calling on God for mercy and repenting of the sins that plagued the nation during the dark days of the judges. So when we say that Elimelech moved his family, we cannot call that a bold move when we're looking at it from a biblical perspective. This is not, he's not being brave. He's lacking faith in the one true living God. He's showing that he's not putting all of his hope and reliance upon the God who can turn everything around if he wants to, who can stop a famine in a single instant. And instead he moves. Further evidence that Elimelech's move is not a brave, faithful move was that Moab, in particular, was an enemy of, of the people of God. You might remember as they're trying to enter the promised land, they go through this area where the king of Moab is in charge of, and they just want passage through. And he denies them passage through and actually calls on Balaam, if you remember the whole Balaam and his donkey story, to, to call down curses upon the people of God. So Moab and Israel, we're, we're not friends. We, we've, that's very clear in Numbers. In Numbers, that was Numbers 22 through 24. Numbers 25, Moabite women seduced the Israelites brought them into fornication and to idol worship. Another thing that God says, don't do these kinds of things. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, Moabites are excluded from the assembly of the Lord, which will be really interesting as we continue reading in the book of Ruth. Moab, even recently in the days of the judges, had oppressed Israel by Eglon, their king, which is a great story if you're reading through the judges how Ehud takes on 
this wicked king Eglon from the Moabites. And so even recently, in their recent history, Moabites, Israelites, we do not get along, we are not friends. And yet Elimelech thinks, I'm going to move my people into this country of Moab, and that seems like a good move. Beyond that, the Moabites, they worship Baal. And if you haven't read the scripture, Baal is not the one true living God, and he is consistently worshipped by people. And they are constantly trying to pull the people of God over into that worship, and they are often pulled in. Obviously, any idol worship was off limits, and he knows as he goes to Moab, they worship Baal, not the one true living God. And so to flee, Moab, to, flee to Moab wasn't a faithful thing. This was a shameful thing. It was dangerous, and it's revealing a lack of faith in Elimelech. He seeks to escape the famine. He seeks to get away from covenant curses in his own way. Now, I don't know if you've heard the story of George Mueller, but before George Mueller was converted, George Mueller was a pretty bad guy. He was full of sin and wickedness and was a thief. And so what he decided to do was to to break out of this sinful mold that he was in, to get rid of these sinful snares, what he would do is he'd move around. And he would change schools, and he would go to different places. He would, he would move away from temptations. He would move away from his friends. He would move away from the familiar and to get him to a new place where he could be a new man. Except for, as one author writes, he, he, he discovered this. He said, he found that to leave one place for another was not to leave his sin behind, for he took himself along. So George Mueller had this problem. Everywhere he went, things didn't seem to get better after a while because it changed for a while and it was okay. But then all of a sudden, like, oh, the true self started coming out. And so he really didn't leave all this thievery and sin and wickedness behind because he always took himself with him. He always went together with himself. And as he did that, all that trouble and that sin followed him around. Elimelech and and Mueller, they, they made moves to solve problems, but they were overlooking the true source of their problem. They were overlooking the genuine and true solution to these problems. And before we want to laugh at Mueller and Elimelech, we also ought to think about our own lives because this is not common for us as well. We do not like to address the real problem. So what we like to do is we want to take care of externals. We want to change circumstances. We want to change settings. We want to change different things. Instead of addressing the real problem, we try to escape Or come up with some solution on our own to get us out of something when we actually just end up taking ourselves with us. And the problem just continues on. So in marriage, you might think, I didn't marry the right person. If I changed my spouse, then things would be better for me. And actually, I want to affirm you in that. You do need a different spouse, but the different spouse that you need, according to Gary Thomas and the scripture, is you. The different spouse you need is you because the problem isn't your spouse. The problem is you. And you are always going to be in marriage. And so you can get a new spouse. That will just be changing the external circumstances. Might be changing the setting a little bit. You could move away. But you will still be in the marriage. And so there will still be problems. Or with kids. Say it's just a phase. They'll get over it. They'll outgrow that kind of stuff. And actually what we try to do is just say like, all right, we'll just deal with this for now. We'll let it go and then they'll grow out of it or we'll change their circumstances by them getting older and then things will change. But actually what will happen is that they won't change. They just might be better at hiding their sinful habits. They'll still be with themselves. They'll still have this sinful, wicked heart, but they might be a little bit different about changing how they show it. So it's not just a phase. Our kids aren't just going through phases. They have a sinful heart that needs to be transformed by the gospel or in your job. 
if I just had a different boss who wasn't so demanding or prideful or wasn't a jerk, then, then I would be a better employee. And then I could share the gospel with people. And then I could shine this light that Jesus told me to shine. When really, we might just be greedy or workaholic or prideful or on and on we could go. Or at church. That church is full of hypocrites. Or I don't like the way they sing. Or that guy, when he preaches, he does something I don't like, and so I'm going to go somewhere else. I want you to be at faithful churches. You may not like some things that we do here or at other churches either, but the problem when you go to other churches is that they're going to be imperfect too. In fact, we can guarantee that no church is going to be perfect if you're in it. I'm not just saying you, I would also say myself as well. That our church is led by very imperfect people and it will always have problems and always be messed up in certain ways. And so the problem isn't primarily the church and the way they do things or the people that are in charge. The problem primarily is sin. And what we want to do is when we see our problem is address the actual problem and find the solution to that problem. See, our problem is our lack of faith. Our problem is our sin. And the only way to deal with it is called repentance. You can either repent of your sin, which actually deals with the problem, or you can be crushed underneath it. Those are the options according to the scripture. Repentance or be crushed. And when we lack faith, what we do is we seek to change the externals, move to Moab, switch jobs, go to a different church, get a divorce, marry someone different, change the circumstance, whatever we can do. And what we're doing is avoiding the real issue and just circling the problem and always taking ourselves with us so it always continues on. But when we see the real problem, which we want to be very clear about is sin, the biggest problem for every single one of us here today isn't some sort of circumstance, it's your sin before a holy God. When we see that problem, what we're called to clearly in Scripture is to repent. So what is repentance? We want to be very clear with what repentance is. It's turning from your sin, from all that you desire to God and what he desires and wants. And I love this, this quote from this pastor named Darren Patrick. He says, in repentance we do three things. We see our sin, we own it, and we turn from it. We see the problem as sin, according to the scripture, and we want to see it, we want to own it, and we turn from it to the living God. We have a huge problem, one that we can't deal with. It's called sin. But there's good news to this. There's good news to the condemnation that we're under before a holy God. And that is that there is a way out of it. Just as Israel had a way out of these curses that were upon them, there is a way out, and it's called repentance. God promised restoration and blessing to the people of Israel. If they repented, there was a way out for them. And God promises us restoration and blessing if we repent. The restoration of relationship to a living God. The blessing of forgiveness and being restored to the way life was meant to be lived. The, the, the problem is sin and the solution is repentance. It was for Limelech and it is for us today. And so even as we read these first couple verses, there's a lot wrong in this story so far. We started with famine and lack of faith through this move that he makes to Moab, but the thing only gets worse. If you look in verse 3, Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Chilion are all in Moab and disaster strikes in Moab. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Now, we, we don't want to separate this from reality. Like, this is a real person. Naomi is a real person. She's married to a real man. 
and her husband dies. If you've experienced anything like this, you, you ought to understand like the pain associated. This is a crushing death for Naomi. She is really hurting, I'm guessing, from this. But all is not lost for Naomi. She still has two sons, right? Maybe they can gather around her and, and kind of rally together as a family. But we see in verse 4, that these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And so out of this anguish and pain of a husband, the, the, the leader of a family dying, we see some good news, right? Marriage. Like, this is a time of joy. These are good celebrations. In the midst of pain and loss, there's, there's celebration. There's something good that is happening. But, but is this good? Man, we got to think about this again, not just from an earthly perspective, but from a biblical perspective. Is it good that these Israelites from Bethlehem are in a foreign land marrying foreign wives? Well, let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Starting in verse 3. God says, and he's saying, if you, if you just can look back up just real quick, he says this of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I think that's all of them, unless the Girgashites and Hittites. This is the people he's talking about, and he says of them in verse 3, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Now, amongst those nations, you don't see the nation of Moab. And so it doesn't seem explicitly that these people are doing something against the law of God by marrying Moabite wives. But it certainly would have been discouraged because the, the kind of the spirit behind the law is that these foreign people will draw you away from what? The living God. And here we don't see the country of Moab listed, but they serve Baal. And certainly the same sort of temptation would have been there for, for intermarriage to pull them away from the one true living God. So even if it's not explicitly listed, I think that this is probably heavily discouraged amongst the true people of Israel. That they could also pull you away from the one true living God. And so taking a Moabite wife doesn't seem to show that they're actually living in covenant faithfulness. It seems to be another sign, another showing that they are lacking faith in the one true living God. And so this, this family, they, they don't seem to be following the Lord. And crisis strikes again after 10 years in verse 5. 10 years. 10 years and then verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Any happiness and hope that was left, that was gained by this marriage, had just been completely erased. After 10 years. This wasn't just a bad couple days for Naomi. This is a bad decade. Famine, leaving your homeland, your husband dying, your two sons dying. This is a horrendous outlook for her. And the last part of verse 5 is about as bleak as it gets. Naomi is left without two sons and a husband. It's a horrible position for a woman of Israel to be in. Who's going to provide? Who's going to lead? Who's going to protect? How is she going to be taken care of? And beyond that, so there's famine and there's death. And then we still have Orpah and Ruth. And beyond that, there's, there's 10 years. And think of what's happened in these 10 years. She is only left with those two daughter-in-laws. So what we have here is two women who are barren, who don't have any children. 
10 years, think of it, 10 years they were married. They likely desired children, 10 years, month after month, thinking maybe this is the one. 10 years, maybe this is the time I'll finally get pregnant. 10 years go by and they're still without children. It's not just a bad few days. This is a bad decade. And so now Naomi is this aged widow without children and no grandchildren. This is one of the worst possible fates for her. Her family, the the name that she carries through her husband Elimelech is on the brink of extinction. They knew that with every passing day that these men don't have sons, that that family name could be wiped out completely. And 10 years go by and no children. Her family is on the brink of extinction and the outlook for Naomi in terms of any future hope or possibilities is horrendous. All that's left to her are two foreign wives, foreign daughters-in-law, two Moabites who serve God who is Baal, who are barren, who have no children, and she has nothing left but them. And doesn't this seem kind of like this Joseph-like scenario where Joseph gets thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. He is faithful there, gets wrongfully accused and thrown into prison where he's faithful there. God even gives him favor and yet they still forget about him over and over again. Joseph's story is like, man, this is a tremendously long storm for Joseph's, Joseph's life. He had a hard going for a long time. Doesn't this seem kind of a a Job-like scenario where everything is stripped away from Job in a single instant, where he loses his children and all of his riches are gone just like that? This seems to be the similar situation that Naomi is in. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Like things just couldn't get any worse. Like how could God have, have been any harder in this situation? where it seems as if the very hand of God is against you personally. If you've ever felt that way, or even if you feel that way now, or if you've suffered even a little bit, you might have felt a twinge of that. What I desire for you is that you'll just journey through Ruth with us. That you'll pick up a study guide and work through it on your own. That you'll jump in a home group and, and start dealing with these things in community. That you'll be faithful to be here on Sundays. Because I think Ruth has something to say to these kind of scenarios. So what does a Christian have to say to this situation or to your situation? These situations where it seems like things couldn't get any worse. I would say that everything in in these first five verses from the book of Ruth is screaming out for redemption. Famine in the land. Death. In fact, those were my two points. Famine, death. It's the name of the sermon too. You can remember it really well. It's not real happy. Famine and death. Famine and death is crying out for redemption. Barrenness from these women, they're crying out for redemption. From where will it come? How's it going to come in this situation? Where's redemption going to come from? What can solve these kinds of problems? And I think that's what the book of Ruth is going to answer so clearly for us. And while it seems that all hope is lost, like everything is bleak and disastrous, Like nothing could get any worse. Husband and sons are gone. I'm only left with two Moabite women. It seems that everything is a disaster. And yet, we ought to see something different in the last verses of this, these first couple verses that we've looked at. There's two that remain. One of them happens to be the title character. And so it doesn't take a genius to start looking at this and say, like, something's up here. 
Like something more is going on when she loses almost everything and yet two remain. One of them happens to be the title character. There's more going on here. Something's up with this story. The title character is introduced in the midst of some horrible events. And so you can be clued in even on those things. Like there's something more going on. Just like there was something more going on in the famine. Just like there's something more going on in Elimelech's move. There's something more going on in the remainder of Ruth and Orpah. So what we see is we see sadness, brokenness, tragedy. But what we don't see is the invisible hand of God moving and working, providentially bringing things about. And see, the book of Ruth, what it's doing for us is it's kind of pulling the curtain back for us that we might see the invisible hand of God at work and how it brings redemption in the midst of great tragedy. How God providentially brings life where there is none. And so in seeing this story in the book of Ruth, what we desire and what I think the scripture would desire is that we would see this story, see the invisible hand of God at work and be strengthened in our faith in this providential God. Because when we look at these first five verses, it seems mysterious to stand up here and say that God's at work. There's famine and death and barrenness and we're saying that God's at work and yes, we are. Because God is this providential God. And he doesn't work in ways that we can always feel and see, but he is always at work, and so we must trust him. And this is summed up really well for us in a hymn by William Cooper called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And we have it quoted up here for you. It says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behold, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. This is the book of Ruth. There are some bitter buds, but we want to see the flower. There are some big storms, and we want to see God's footsteps and him riding upon it. There's some ways of looking at it that could be blind in unbelief, but God is his own interpreter, and he's going to make it plain. See, God does often move in mysterious ways. And so we, as, as, the, as people who trust in God, must be careful not to judge by what we see and feel. Because God is this mysterious mover who works and acts behind the scenes where we can't even feel or see or even know. He moved mysteriously in a virgin one who no one would pick to be the bearer of anything. And he not only gives her good news, he gives a child whose name happens to be Emmanuel, God with us. God moved mysteriously in that this son of God, God in the flesh, dies, bleeds, is wounded, is killed. It's mysterious movement from God. We see God moving in all sorts of mysterious ways. And through his mysterious ways, he brings about redemption, Amen. as he did for this mysterious God-man named Jesus, who dies and is buried and is raised. Redemption comes.
comes. He brings this redemption when and where it's desperately needed. And it's desperately needed in the book of Ruth and it's desperately needed for us. Perhaps you don't know Jesus. There's a problem there. And there's only one solution and that's this word repentance. To turn from your sin and trust in the living God who lived the life that you could never live who died the death that you deserve to die because of your sin, who was buried and who was raised, was raised bringing justification to all who would trust in him. But perhaps you're here today and you do trust in Christ. But we need to be reminded of the mysterious ways of God and how he brings redemption mysteriously. We need to be encouraged that he plants his footsteps in the seas, that he rides upon the storm, that the clouds that we dread are heavy and will break with mercy, that behind this frowning providence, this hard providential hand of God, like Naomi's, that God hides a smiling face. So brothers and sisters today, we, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And what this is, is a reminder of us of how God brought redemption. In the midst of our greatest need, in our time of need, a man was born whose name was Christ. He was Messiah, the anointed one, God with us. And he lived the life that we couldn't live in perfect holiness and righteousness and obedience to God the Father. And because of that, he got nailed to a cross, something he did not deserve, but something that he took upon himself willingly. Christ dies willingly in our place to bring us back to God to deliver us from the power and penalty of our sin. And so when we take this meal, what we're doing is that we're, we're saying that because of what Christ has done, I've been reconciled to, to God. That I now have redemption in his name. And so we tear off a piece of the bread that was to symbolize the, the body of Christ that was broken for us. And we dip it in the juice that was to symbolize the, the blood of God that was poured out for forgiveness of sins. And we want to be reminded that this is the redemption that we have in Christ. We take this meal in faith. But if you're not a believer, don't take this meal. Repent and believe in Jesus. This is a sacred family meal, and we want you to take Christ. And so as we get up here in just a minute, I pray that if you don't know Christ, that you'd take Christ and not this meal. But if you do, that you'd stand up in faith, and you'd come in faith, and you'd take this meal in faith, knowing that it's only by faith that this sin is taken away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing your mysterious providential hand in the book of Ruth. May you open our eyes to the wonders of your redemption in this book, I plead you. Please show us more and more. We too live in a time when people do what's right in their own eyes. And it is so easy for us in our culture, in our neighbors, in our family to try, try to solve these problems, God, by changing external circumstances, by changing their setting, and by missing the real problem of their sin, and by missing the real solution that's found in Christ alone. God, open our eyes to the greatness of the redemption that we have in Christ and help us be ambassadors and messengers of that good news to our families, to our neighbors, and to the nations that there's a problem that's called sin and there is only one solution that's found in Christ. God, I pray for all of those who have trusted in Christ to come boldly before your throne and even boldly to this table that we have no right at other than that Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out and that we would take this meal in faith and be reminded of how good you are to us. And God, I pray for unbelievers that they would take Christ instead. Do this work in us that your, might, your name might be glorified and known among all the earth. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.